Hi, welcome to Offscript. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Today on the show, we'll be reviewing the new uh, Netflix-exclusive Andy Circus film, Mowgli, Legend of the Jungle. We'll, be, we'll also be taking a look, good lord, that was a stumble. We'll also be taking a look back on uh, the 25th year anniversary of Steven Spielberg's 1993 Academy Award winner for Best Picture, Schindler's List. A hell of a movie. I'd actually never seen it before this episode, so I'm right. really looking forward to a conversation about it. Uh, we are going to do a conversation about what do I do a conversation. We're going to talk about the Golden Globes because those uh, nominations were announced and we're going to dig back into just like last year, uh, why Andy has an adamant hate for them. Uh, and and I'm, I'm interested to see what he has to say about this year's nominees. So we'll get to that. But before all of that, we need to talk about the news. The first story this week, a movie inspired. And, and I should say, I don't want to bury the lead here. This is just the first one we're talking about. There's actually some cool news this week. So hear me out. A movie inspired by Prince's music is in the work at Universal. Universal Pictures has acquired the rights to a number of classic songs from Prince's catalogs and is developing an original film musical inspired by the music using songs to drive a fictional narrative. Andy, your music man, you found this story. What do you think about this? You know, I, I really like the, this idea, and I kind of wish this had been done for uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. Uh, so to give a, shed a little more light, they want to do a movie, an original story, and just have it kind of guided by Prince's music. Very similar to something like Mamma Mia, which is an original story which features the music of ABBA. So I think that would be a really cool thing to see uh, with Prince's music, and I think that might be a better step for you know, a, a lot of modern artists, because we know, already know so much about their lives. A biopic is kind of pointless. Right. And it mentions in here that Universal already felt like Purple Rain kind of covered that. I know it's not a biopic, but I mean, for what it's worth, Prince is in it. It's got his music. So this is a, a different approach. I'm I'm really into this idea. Uh, I, a guilty pleasure film of mine is Across the Universe, a film based on the, the work of the Beatles. I love that movie. And it's got a lot of problems, but for what it's worth, like when you use really powerful music that a lot of people are familiar with, you can create really powerful work. Um, if you get some good team, like a good team behind it and come up with some really stunning visuals to match the music, you can make some cool stuff. So I'm interested to see what comes out of it. Uh, hopefully it does justice to the brand. Uh, any, any, any hot picks on Prince music that you'd like to see covered maybe, or uh, I don't know, any, any other artists you'd like to see with this kind of treatment? Uh, what else do you think? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm not a, a huge, I don't know a lot about Prince or his music, um, but I like this trend. And actually what I would like to see, I would like to see like the rap slash hip hop version of, of a movie musical, a rap musical, okay. something like that. That's what I'm uh, kind of w waiting for. Um, I don't know if any if anyone's brave enough to do it. Uh, Hamilton is somewhat in that vein, but it still kind of leans more to musical in my opinion. Yeah. Well, I'm uh, I'm certainly interested to see what they do. Universal, uh, just to cover some of the stuff they've done. They've also done Mamma Mia, as mentioned. Pitch Perfect, uh, uh, Les Miserables. They also have Last Christmas, Christmas, which is a George Michael film, and they're working on a film adaptation of Cats. Both of those are set to come out next year. So it's interesting. It's an angle, and you're right. Like Considering what Bohemian Rhapsody did, like it can't hurt, right? Uh, so I'm interested to see what happens. We'll talk about it on the show when it does. Uh, the next story, Kevin Hart. Steps down as Oscar host. This would normally have been preceded by the story Kevin Hart announced as <laughs> yeah. host of the Oscars, but there was some there were some issues with that. Uh, you want to you want to get into it? Yes. Yeah, so uh, last week uh, I was actually excited about the story. Initially, uh, Kevin Hart was set to host the Oscars, and and I like Kevin Hart. I think he's r really funny. 
Zach was l- less than excited. <laughs> but <laughs> He's um, okay. It's fine. I was really looking forward to it. But then uh, 48 hours later, he was asked to kind of step down. And the reason was is uh, some people found uh, some old tweets from about 10 years ago that were uh, deemed to be homophobic or anti-gay. And um, it wasn't actually the tweets that were the problem as much as his reaction to this this backlash. Um, he did not want to apologize. He he very much stood his ground about um, you know saying you know he didn't defend the tweets, but he just said you know I've grown as a person. This is that's not who I am anymore. That whole thing. But it, but he didn't really actually apologize until about the the. Uh, he made three different videos. The second one, the Academy called him and said, you need to apologize for this, and he refused. Finally, I think they probably just told him he wasn't going to do it anymore, and then he apologized. Um, so it's an unfortunate uh, situation, and, you know, this is, you know, it's a thing we're dealing with as, like, as a people, you know, because w- lots of, I think it was Nick Cannon today actually dug up a bunch of old tweets from lots of different celebrities that... Uh, you know, are in the same vein, and no one seems to have a problem. Um, but like I said, I don't think it's actually the tweets themselves that were the issue as much as his re- his reaction and lack of apology. Yeah, it's 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 tough, man. And and yes, to be fair, to address your first point, wasn't super excited about Kevin Hart. It's not that I don't like him. I just uh, I don't know. I don't know. I guess I I feel a little bit like he's just. Maybe I'm maybe I'm jaded by by comedians, but I just feel like he's a little bit like flavor of the month, and and you know five years from now people are gonna be like Kevin Hart who like there's gonna be some other comedian that's it's it's the hot thing. So right, um, I, I do like him though, and the more stuff I see of him, the more I'm like okay, I, I kind of get what he's about. In a way, I, I he he looked like the most the, the funniest part of the movie Night School. So if I had seen that, I'm sure I would have enjoyed him. <laughs> uh, and I'm sure I would have enjoyed him at the Oscars. I'm a little bummed by this, and and it's not. Let me be clear, it's not because I'm defending the things he said. Uh, I man, I I really do think we're at a point where a lot of people, man. I don't. This is going to sound political. I don't mean for it to, but I, I think a lot of people are are, are starting to come around. Um, like the point Nick Cannon made, as as much as I'm frustrated by his uh, hypocrisy in doing it, because he's got a lot of comments like that as well. Um, a lot of people are coming around to the idea that like people change. You know, we we live in an ever changing world, and and I I kind of wish Kevin Hart had just you know issued a standard apology sorry didn't mean it and then he'd be hosting the oscars and right. like maybe that would move maybe that would move the goalpost a little bit in this whole thing but instead he, he stomped his feet and he said i'm not doing anything and now nothing has happened and now the oscars are out of host and this has turned into a whole thing and i'm like why what was it all for you know right. what, what, are you, what exactly are you defending you know yeah, and and I think it, it's important to also point out that that times change, and what was acceptable humor ten years, twenty years ago isn't anymore. You know, I, I sat down to watch Eddie Murphy's Raw, which is from like nineteen eighty two, uh, a couple weeks ago, and I just had to turn it off because he just uses a lot of uh, LGBT <laughs> slurs, and it's just sure. common commonplace. And and it's not that people are more sensitive it's just what was acceptable is no longer acceptable and that's okay and we can say you know humor has changed people has changed you know i don't think that kevin hart is homophobic or anti lgbtq or any of that i think there were jokes that were acceptable to tweet in public 10 years ago and they're not now right and, I, and if if he was still doing this today it'd be a problem but they're a decade old you know and this was a problem with um 
I was going to say, Rian Re- Johnson. No, Rian Johnson deleted a bunch of tweets. Uh, yeah. uh, uh, Guard- James Gunn, Guardians of the Galaxy, this came up. That was a thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and then there's some comedians like um, Dave Chappelle recently. He on If you listen to his recent stand-ups, he has a lot of trans jokes, and he makes a point about that he got in trouble for these jokes and he said well i'm just going to keep doing them and that's you know but that's comedy that's stand-up that's a different space and you know he's he's welcome to do that but like like i said things change what is acceptable changes and people change and but most importantly i think it's it's important to own up and apologize when you need to apologize yeah one thing's for sure uh, I'm, I'm i'm sure most of this will be cannon fodder for whoever the new host is the Academy has not announced anybody new. They haven't been reached. Uh, they haven't made any comment, I think, on any of this for, for, for any journalist who's reached out. Um, they've been very quiet on the whole thing. So I don't know. I, I guess we'll, we'll keep you posted on what happens with the Oscars. Like I mentioned before, we're going to have a conversation about the Golden Globes in the middle of our show today. So stay tuned for that. But in the meantime, one more story before we get to Mowgli. I, Tanya, director in early talks to tackle Cruella de Vil. Uh, for Disney, a live-action Cruella de Vil movie, just like Maleficent, it'll be incredible. It, that's uh, right, Andy. Please uh, fill me in on this. Uh, so the live-action remakes keep coming, and which is funny because yes. we are, already have a live-action version of 101 Dalmatians. Um, but you know, Disney's really cashing in on their old properties, and so they're going to remake this movie, set it in the 80s, give it a little bit of a punk vibe, and it's going to star Emma Stone as Cruella de Vil. So it's got a lot of elements that will probably make it successful. Uh, what do you think? Um, I, I okay. One, I, I dig the '80s punk thing. That's neat, uh, and I'll tell you why. Because my my, it's funny. We meant to have a bigger conversation about this for a little while on off script, but we keep having things come up like the Golden Globes that kind of push this segment back but we're at some point we need to have a deeper conversation about disney's live action remakes and what they are doing right and what they aren't doing right and and what that means for for disney um and this kind of ties into that but i like the idea of the spin uh, i get they kind of that with maleficent and they kind of do that with most of their movies um uh, most of their live action movies uh but i i don't know if it'll be enough because even if you have an 80s punk Cruella DeVille, at the end of the day, she still hates animals. And at the end of the day, she still wants to make fur coat out of animals. And sure. if you're going to spin it like, oh, well, she's not really Cruella DeVille. She's she's uh, uh, a different version of her in a different Cruella time. Cruella well, then ultimately, <laughs> ultimately, did you just come up with that? Is this yes, I did. I did. Not, well done. Uh, <laughs> kudos. Uh, she... Ultimately, if she's not the same Cruella DeVille, then she doesn't have the same Danimois. She doesn't end up hating dogs at the end of the movie. And if she turns around, what's the point? How is she Cruella DeVille at all? Like, part of... I mean, Cruella DeVille is at her core a woman who hates dogs, right? Wants wants the fur. That's her whole thing. Um, if she isn't going to be that at the end of the movie, how is it a Cruella DeVille movie? You just have a character film, um, and you're throwing Cruella DeVille on the front of it for... for Cheap well, cash in, which sure. really is, I, I don't know, right? If it's if it's an origin story, though, you get to take a step back before she gets to that being that point, you know. Uh, so sure. I, I think there's some freedom there, some a little bit of a liberty you can take, and I mean, you know, not not I mean, get called from P, not get calls from Peta. I, I would agree, but the, the Dalmatians is set in the '60s in Paris. Like, how is this the '80s? Like, in like it doesn't. You see what I mean? It can't be an origin story. Right. Like it, it all it is a different thing. Maybe it's some kind of sequel, but like I don't know. 
I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I but we'll, we'll keep it here. For, keep it here on off script to find out more. I guess. I, I don't. I don't know what they'll do with it. I, I'm intrigued to find out what happens. Um, I, I like the the director who's 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 uh, on on board to be a part of it. Uh, he's also the co-creator of. Um, no, sorry, I'm getting that confused. I don't know. Let's move on. I I I, I don't have much more to say about it. I guess so. I'll just leave it at that. Uh, anything anything else you want to get to before we talk to our first talk about our first film? I'm ready to go. All right. The first movie we have on the docket, uh, Netflix film, of course, ne- uh, Netflix original. Uh, this is Andy Serkis's Mowgli. Until one day, I just stopped. And I gained their trust. Gained their trust, little brother. So, uh, I've got the easy summary this week, fortunately for me. Uh, Mowgli is the story of the titular Jungle Book character, Mowgli. This is not a Disney adaptation, although it shares a lot of similarities. Mowgli is the story of the young Mowgli, uh, who is born uh, in a village in, I would assume, somewhere in in, in India. Yeah. Uh, he is born in the jungle uh, with well, amongst a lot of, of animals. Uh, he is left out there as his, his mother in different versions of the story his parents are either attacked by Shere Khan or leave him either way he is alone in the jungle the the, the animals come together uh, in in a oddly uh, personified manner they they all speak of course and uh, they decide to take him under their wing and raise him as one of their own a man cub as he is referred to in the jungle book uh, disney version and this film uh, they raise him uh, he gets to a certain age and they decide being in the jungle isn't safe for you you need to go back to the village with your you know your 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 people your 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 uh, men as it were man uh, in order to avoid uh, death or destruction or something worse from from Shere Khan the tiger of the jungle the the, the beast um, and and slowly over the film uh, Mowgli has to decide whether or not that's the best decision for him this is not a, a direct ripoff of the jungle book uh, in a lot of ways, it reminded me, and this is going to sound very twisted, it reminded me of Rob Zombie's Halloween remake. Uh-huh. Uh, in, in Zombie's remake of, I know, in Zombie's remake, hear me out, in Zombie's remake of Halloween, <laughs> uh, the first half of the film is this whole big origin story, and then the last half is John Carpenter's Halloween, just in 45 minutes. You just took a whole movie and you squeezed it in the last half of the movie. This movie does the opposite. The first half of this is basically the Jungle Book as you know it, and the last half is an expansion of the story. Uh, right. With some interesting kind of twists and turns, and and that's really where the meat is. It takes a little while to get there, though, and 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 that can be a struggle. And there's a few reasons why, and I want to talk about that. But first, Andy, what did you think of Mowgli: Legend of the Jungle? So I went into this with pretty low expectations. I hadn't really heard good things. It was about fifty percent fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, but again, when it's on Netflix and you it, you're already subscribing to the service, the the risk is a little bit lower. Um, but I was really surprised. I really liked it. I, I thought it went in new directions and I'd heard it was, it was a much darker, going to be a much darker story. And it definitely was. And I've heard it's more close to the book itself or the stories themselves than the Disney f- versions. And, th- and I think that's part of the issue with this movie is that everyone compares it to what Disney has already done. And so it kind of starts, you know, behind in, in this race t- that, that they kind of created to make the Jungle Book story. 
Um, but I just I I like that it was dark. I felt like it was a more mature story. I love the voice acting. the The voice cast is incredible, um, and it's just it's a more complex movie because it's about kind of you know change versus tradition and chaos and and a kind of stability. And so there's it's m- much more complex than the Jungle Book movie that we've come to know from Disney. I agree. Um, I I had issues with it. I I don't think I enjoyed it as much as you did. Um, but most of my issues are practical in nature, sure. uh, based on plot and theme. I'm not sure if I enjoyed this much more than the Disney Jungle Book. One, it's Disney, and of course they tell it in, in a Disney fashion, which is very charming, a very clean three-act structure. This one's a little misleading at first, because it starts off like that, and then you realize about halfway through the movie, okay, wait, they're, they're kind of doing a different thing here. Um I, plot and theme are a good place to start here, I think. Uh, thematically, you're right. This one does a lot more. Um, it's a lot more dense, and it digs in deeper. And, and, and it has questions of what does it mean to have culture and be man? Uh, do, you know, are, are we truly separate from beasts, or are we just different versions of them? You know, And, and I enjoyed all of that. All, all, of, all of that felt good. There's a lot of uh, kind of long-take stuff, kind of deep introspective. There's a lot of shots of... Kind of silence of, of Mowgli kind of pondering or thinking about something. There's very clear frustration at, at his uh, misunderstanding of the world. He is a child after all. Um, and I, I that all felt good. So, where were, so where were your of, issues? <laughs> right. It's set in a backdrop of, of budget CGI, which right. hurts mm-hmm. visually. Uh, and again... This is similar to us talking about the new Robin Hood uh, last week and how it did poorly at the box office. Um, this is a story we all know. We all know the Jungle Book. We, we all know it. So it hurts to watch a movie that, like, I kind of already know this story. Why am I watching this again? You know? And, and right. the convenience of watching this at home on Netflix helps a lot. The medium, just like the Ballad of Buster Scruggs, actually helps it a lot. But... Man, just the, the practical nature of it. Circus was a, a second unit director on The Hobbit, which was great. Uh, and he's got a lot of experience there. But this is one of his first real forays into doing his own thing. Uh, also Planet of the Apes, I should say. He worked a lot on those series. Um, but this one lacked a certain, I don't, I don't know, rigidity. Uh, and and I, I felt like that hurt the movie um, in the way it's shot. But that's, that's, we'll get to that in a second. What did you think of the look of it? Um, so again, unfortunately it will be compared to the Disney version from, uh, John, John Favreau's version from last year or two years ago. Um, some things look pretty good and convincing, uh, but like you said, the, the CGI isn't as good. I, I feel like it leans into the animation side more and less on the live action. Like the animals look a little bit more cartoonish and less realistic. And what I've heard about CGI is you can make anything look like real life it just it's a matter of budget how much you're, you're going to spend right um i did and like oh go ahead no I, i'm just gonna bounce off that but you you're still going don't worry about it go ahead um you know i i did like kind of the scope of it 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 very much sets the jungle as a backdrop almost as a character itself and kate blanchett does this great voiceover as ka and it's it almost reminded me or did remind me of lord of the rings because it has straight up she, she does that kind of very epic uh you know what what are you going to mean to the jungle what will your destiny be like um like 
the jungle is treated treated as a living being almost and and i just really enjoyed kind of the scope of it yes uh that was that was a very very I don't want to say clumsy nod, but I know Andy Serkis worked very closely with Peter Jackson on the Lord of the Rings films and The Hobbit. Uh, the Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring opens with Kate Blanchett speaking about the ring as this kind of all-knowing entity and, and this small creature that, 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 that does something that surprises that and upsets the balance of the world. The Jungle Book opens with Kate Blanchett talking about the jungle as an all-knowing entity and this small creature that upsets the balance of, of the world. Um, except the in the Lord of the Rings, the thing is the ring. In the Jungle Book, the thing is the jungle. And you're right; that's more all-encompassing. That's a setting, not not an object. And, and that that is important. And you're right; the jungle feels very alive and sweeping. Like there's constantly foliage and stuff in the background. It doesn't look like they went. I know a lot of it's CGI, which is why it sounds silly for me to say it doesn't look like they shot it on a backlot because I know they shot it all on green screen. But that being said. Like I would argue, this I, I like the look of this more than I like the some like the look of something like Tomb Raider, because Tomb Raider felt like you just went out to a back lot and shot. It, this yeah. actually felt like, in a way, there was really like lush foliage and it was creative. Like somebody really went to the trouble to painstakingly put it all together. There's more effort, and therefore it felt more like a crazy unruly jungle. Right. That doesn't. That's not to say that a lot of it didn't look the same. It does tend to look that way. But they play a lot with shooting at sunset, night. Day, morning, uh, stormy. Like they, they, they play a lot with light and color to kind of help it stretch out. And, and that animated feel does start to kind of sink away, especially when you get to uh, the bit where Mowgli actually starts to move towards the jungle, uh, to, towards the village, and starts interacting with people. And you switch to almost exclusively live action um, right. for the, for that kind of stuff, which helps it feel very rooted in reality. You get out of the jungle, and the jungle is kind of this mythical place. You've got these these animals that talk and 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 uh, the, the the snake played beautifully by by Kate Blanchett. Um, it's kind of hypnotic and it's got kind of this you know this vibe to it. Uh, and then you get to man and it feels normal. And I think in a way that split is intentional, you know, right. to, to keep one feeling mystical and the other feeling rooted in reality. And th- and that that was good. That that helps the character kind of feel a little bit more um, real and helps it kind of pop off the page or, or the screen. And by the end of the movie. Um, I felt good about it. I felt good about the setting, but man, like that first that first forty five where you're waiting for you to get through the Jungle Book part before you find out. Okay, it's not all exclusively the Jungle Book. There's more to it. Um, it was a struggle. I, I was I was like, I've seen this. I know this. Like, let's let's move right, on. Right, right. You know, I I did kind of uh, struggle through this the second act because it, it does slow down uh, a little bit. You know, in the in the Disney versions. A Mowgli goes to the man village is kind of the ending. Um, in this, we get there much sooner, and that that actually plays a larger role in in the film. But also, kind of, it's he's a kind of a bridge between the two communities, and that plays a bigger role than it does in the older older films. Which is powerful for a couple reasons. Uh, one, because again, if you've seen the film uh, already, then then you get to that and you go, oh, there's more to this story, and like suddenly you're a bit more invested. It keeps you it keeps you on the ride, you know. And two, because as I as I pointed out to Christine, who was kind enough to watch this with me, the the story of the Jungle Book does not age particularly well. It doesn't work. It doesn't work very well in 2018 because the story of the Jungle Book ultimately the lesson is if you're different, you need to leave and go find a community that's all your own. Right. Don't don't bother trying to integrate with other people with with the world. Like you have to go do your own thing. That's I mean that's what it is. This story doesn't necessarily do that necessarily. It kind of right. does. 
it honestly leaves a lot up to interpretation, I think, um, which is interesting. What did you think about that? Yeah, well, and that that's kind of what I liked is, like I said, it's a more complex, complicated situation because they realize that it's not just he needs to go to the man village. He needs to be a bridge between two peoples and two worlds, the village versus the, the jungle. And like I said, uh, Shere Khan, voiced brilliantly by uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, um, yes. is is just kind of chaotic you know one of the their their laws is you know we don't we don't hunt man's animal referring to cattle because that will bring chaos and they will that will bring hunters but Shere Khan keeps doing it for sport and to also upset the balance of within the wolf pack so there's almost like this political thing going on between the animals and like the groups of animals and it like I said it makes it much more adult and more mature and to me more rewatchable I agree. I, I like the way the wolf pack works. I, I think a lot of people lost because of the Disney uh, adaptation. Uh, that in the Rudyard, Rudyard, Rudyard Kipling, I don't know, novel, uh, uh, originally, uh, Mowgli was taken in by a pack of wolf cubs, and this plays plays to that perfectly. It actually follows that a little bit better than, than, than the uh, Disney version does. Um, I, I, we should talk about the cast for a moment, because like you said, uh, there's some brilliant voice acting in this work, which is true. And what I assume has to be motion capture, right? Like, surely, that's that's Andy Serkis' bag. Um, uh-huh. It was tough for me to tell, uh, which is probably good. But then again, we're, we're, I mean, we're, we're, we're transplanting uh, faces onto animals, so it's it's tough to tell. But I think that's a good thing, ultimately. Right. Uh, just to go over some of... Hey, do you want to, please, hit, hit some of your favorites here. Of the voice cast? Yeah, unless you, you're, I mean, I've yeah, got to yeah, pull up. I didn't mean to put you on the that, spot. That's but. what, no, that's what I wanted to definitely talk about. So it's basically a who's who uh, a voice can see. So Christian Bale plays Bagheera, Kate Blanchett is Ka, Benedict Cumberbatch, as we mentioned, is Shere Khan. Um, Andy Serkis plays Baloo in, in a very thick, like, English accent. It's great. Um, yeah, it's just solid uh, uh, voice casting. It's it's really impressive. And, and again, we know Baloo is like kind of a big dumb bear. And in this, it's it's much different. I mean, he's, he's like uh, kind of a hard-talking, uh, cockney-accented Englishman. Yes, which honestly, I don't mean to, to put this past Andy Serkis, but like somehow that didn't surprise me. I was like, of course, a- Andy Serkis would play that that way. So I, get, he, I mean, he's the director. It's, it's however he wants to do it. The kid in the movie... Uh, Rohan Chand, Chand. Uh, he was also in Bad Words. He was that kid that played alongside uh, uh, Jason Sudeikis. No, I didn't say that right. Jason Sudeikis. Who am I thinking of? Jason? No. I don't know. Oh, God, it's all falling apart. Jason Bateman, yes. Uh, so, yeah, if, if you have any idea who that is and you can remember it, unlike I did, uh, he was also in Jumanji. So he's been in a couple things, but he was really good. I, I really enjoyed his performance in this movie. He's, he's got these big, wide eyes, and he looks at the world like he's never seen it before. It was really good work. Uh, I was really surprised how much I enjoyed him. The last thing I wanted to kind of talk about is this is a much darker film. Like, it's more animalistic. It's much more violent. Um, yes. W- which we haven't seen it in, in the other versions. Uh, there's, you know, there's animal on animal violence. There's, like, hunters, people hunting the animals. And it's it's got a little bit of some horror elements in, in a couple of spaces. So it's definitely a much more grown-up movie. I wouldn't take kids under 10 probably uh, to see this, you know, it's not it's not as family friendly as the other versions, right? Um, and and that's fortunately, I mean, you can watch it at home on Netflix, uh, so you don't have to go anywhere. But I do want to mention before we get out, uh, we get out of this, move on to the Golden Globes. 
Um, being on Netflix, uh, just like any Netflix exclusive release, do you think it stands a better chance over there than it does in theaters? Should it have gone to theaters? Limited release, maybe? Um, what do you think? I think this is a smart move because just because it trailed Disney, if it was on its own, it probably would have done a lot better. But it's also, it's not the Jungle Book we know that's family friendly, that's kid friendly, and that's a big part of that market. You know, I think it would struggle to find an audience. You would have angry parents who took their kids thinking it would be fine. Um, so I think Netflix, it, it's a safe choice. This is, you know, just like we saw with Annihilation. Uh, the studio was afraid about making their money back. They sold it to Netflix uh, at cost. And, you know, everyone's happier. It's a better financial decision. Yeah, I agree. Uh, it's a smart move. I, I think Andy Serkis, his two other films he's done are Breathe, starring Andrew Garfield and Claire Foy, which came out last year. Um, and and uh, for anybody who doesn't know, that's the story. You probably saw a trailer for it. And uh, a- Andrew Garfield gets some kind of disease and has trouble breathing, and Claire Foy is his wife, and it's right, similar right. to the, the theory of it. I think it got buried by the theory of everything. Uh, he also did a movie called uh, The Ruin of Empire or something like that. It was a TV movie. This is a Netflix movie. It's smart. It's a good way to kind of get into it. I mean, he's been a second unit director. He's starting to get into this. Like, don't go for anything directly into theaters. Like, kind of, kind of work your way in. I, I wish... I, I, not that this wasn't an ambitious film, but I, I, I just I wish I had seen a little bit more. I look at somebody like Bradley Cooper, like first directing, and he's up for best picture and best actor and act. And then I look at Andy Serkis, and I'm like, man, what's going on? Like, <laughs> why? I mean, you got to start why somewhere. Why is this taking so long? <laughs> yeah, you do. Uh, yeah, I mean, genius can come from anywhere, I guess. So I shouldn't, I shouldn't write him off. But I, I wanted a little bit more. Uh, I guess I wanted a little bit more. Um, creativity a, a little less sticking to uh kind of what works it, it it draws outside of the it colors outside of the lines just a little bit but i kind of wish it had painted its own picture i guess uh, right that's ultimately how i felt about it uh andy what did you think of mowgli legend of the jungle uh i think you mean recommendations Sorry, would you but- <laughs> recommend yeah my god would you recommend dude i'm falling apart this episode would you recommend mowgli legend of the jungle uh yeah uh definitely like i said I really enjoyed it. I think it's a much more, it's more mature. It's more adult. It's a darker film. It's more enjoyable to me. It's definitely not, though, kid-friendly. Don't let your five-year-olds watch this. It will probably be too scary. Um, so, yeah, for the most part, I, I would recommend it. And, it, you know, if you're already subscribing to Netflix, it, you already have it available to you. So there's not much risk. Yeah, I would recommend it. As well, and, and again, that that is because it's a Netflix option. Um, it, it may not be my, I say I'd recommend it, but then I'm about to say, it may not be my first pick on Netflix. There may be other things to watch, but it's fun, and it's an evolution on the, on the medium. I didn't see Disney's live-action Jungle Book, so I was spared a lot of, of kind of fatigue that may, many people may not feel. But if you're a fan of the original Jungle Book and you want something that's a little different, a little off the beaten path, and you got a Saturday with nothing to do that afternoon, maybe check it out. You might be surprised at how much you enjoy it. Yeah. Uh, it is Benedict Cumberbatch's second romp as a villain named Khan, which is super neat. <laughs> um, and, and that's about all the trivia I've got for it. But that's Mowgli, uh, Legend of the Jungle. Yeah, great I, voice acting. I had it's some, yeah, I got some sm- some smog vibes from uh, from the, his Shere Khan acting. Also that, yeah. Uh, again, <laughs> uh, Andy Serkis worked on The Hobbit, and he's got Benedict Cumberbatch playing a motion cat, mocap villain. Uh, that's an animal. Again, yeah. With the blood li- <laughs> yeah, again, like, there's some 
that's what I mean. I'm like, it just it kind of colors within the lines, but it's still fun. I still enjoy the performances. Uh, it's good stuff. Uh, let's move on to our traditional segment. I know it hasn't been a minute since we've done this, but I always enjoy it. Andy, please take it away. It's time for the death of cinema. Oh, sorry. So I'll continue to, to introduce. Yes, the, uh, please. Okay, yeah, so, so we're going to be talking about the uh, Golden Globes, which were announced last week, and why the Golden Globes mm. continue to be a big joke uh, and, <laughs> and are always kind of shunned and made fun of uh, when it comes to award season, especially in, in reference to the Oscars. Not that any awards show is, is perfect, um, and it's important to know that most awards ceremonies and shows are for business and have a, a big business interest. A lot of people don't know that, and that's but that's that's they don't want you to. Uh, but let's just talk right. a little bit ab- about um, th- what's been nominated. So, in the best motion picture drama category, we have Black Klansman, Bohemian Rhapsody, If Beale Street Could Talk, A Star Is Born, and Black Panther. I should jump in before we get too far into yes, this. We're go not going to go down all the nominees or anything. We just picked a few select categories to look at here. So stay tuned. We're, we're, we're going to wrap this up soon, I promise. But go ahead. Well, well I was about to, to defer to you. So what do you think about those those five nominees? Sure. Uh, for Best Motion Picture Drama, I, I'm a little disappointed. And, and I, I should have said this at the top of the show, but and I'll, I'll say it again towards the end here. Something we've been slowly working on, because uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to the conversation this year, is our top 10 lists of the year. Uh, This is our first year doing this podcast throughout the whole year. We've seen a lot of movies, and I started putting together earlier last week my top 10 list, and I was stunned at how much much difficulty I'm having. I still don't have it ironed out. At first, I thought, oh, it won't be so bad. I'll go through, look at the episodes we've done, and and pick my top 10 movies. I came up to like 18 films that I loved this year. I'm really having trouble picking. This, these movies are a handful of good ones, but by no means are at the top of my list. And, and a lot of movies that should be at least considered haven't been uh, and maybe have been changed out for other things. I feel like these a little bit pander to general audiences. It's a little very, bit more like, hey, here's, so. here's what people like and not what was actually a great film. Uh, the one that really stands out here. And it's... Weird because this did make my initial run of like my top 18 of the year. I did put Bohemian Rhapsody in. It's a guilty sure. pleasure. I'm going to be honest. The more I think about it, the more I'm like, I love the music. Rami Malik was great. But I don't know if I'd put it in this list. Uh, I, I also, I don't know. What, you take this away from me before so, I insult I'll, someone. I'll, Go ahead. Yeah. I'll, Bohemian Rhapsody has no business being on on there. It was <laughs> it's a medi- it's a mediocre movie, but it did make lots of money, and that's and that's important. To know that because a lot of times if a film is commercially successful, it helps it become nominated because then it can make even more money. This is why we didn't see sure. Blade Runner 2049 last year nominated for anything because it was a flop. So you don't want to go and promote a flop because, I mean, you're not already, you've already lost money. You might as well promote something else. Uh, but to me, that's, that's the biggest kind of egregious thing is that, I mean, Bohemian Rhapsody is just not a great movie and it's up here with other great movies um which takes me to the other issue is that the golden globes have two kind of best motion picture categories the second one is musical or comedy and this is where a lot of things get shoved that shouldn't necessarily be there uh, oh get, my God. A, get out from a couple years ago was put in there as a comedy and it's definitely not that um, it is not a comedy yeah so what so this list is um crazy rich asians the favorite 
Green Book, Mary Poppins Returns, and Vice. So what are the problems uh, here? <laughs> I haven't seen Vice, so I can't judge because I haven't seen it yet. But the favorite and Green Book have no reason to be there. I, I, my, my Christine, she texted me after this came out, and she was like, did you see the, Green, the, 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 the Golden Globe nominees? And I said, no, what's up? She said, why is the favorite in comedy? <laughs> so yeah, exactly. I, like, I don't know. Um, I mean, it, don't get me wrong. It's funny. It, there's certainly elements in it that are funny, but it is not a com it is not a comedy film. It is a drama, objectively. I, I think the only comedy in here is Crazy Rich Asians. The rest sure. are are serious films that have some comedic elements. I mean, Green Book is about Jim Crow South slate uh, not slavery racism, and uh, the favorite is a very dark film. Even, yes, it has some funny moments, and I haven't right. seen Vice yet, but I mean, that's I feel like that's going to be kind of like the Big Short, where it's going to be a kind of satirical take on a very serious subject. Green Book is directed by Peter Farrelly, who is a comedy director, and even he said, I'm excited to be directing my first drama film. Like, it is a drama. That's what it is. Mary Poppins Returns, it's a musical. Got it. It's a musical. Checks that box. Done. Musical or comedy. Um, so I'm not too worried about that. But yeah, the only two that feel like they should actually be there are Crazy Rich Asians and Mary Poppins Returns, which makes me think one of those is probably going to win. Like, that just seems a little biased, you know? Right. Um, and then there's a bunch of stuff that is nowhere to be seen. Uh, you know, I think of things like, uh, I think Roma should be on here. It is nominated for Best Foreign Film, but uh, First Reformed, Disobedience, uh, You Were Never Really Here, some of these things that we've talked about being some of the best things of the year, nowhere to be seen. Well, gosh, uh, yeah, I think of movies like Eighth Grade, Mid-90s, A Quiet Place. Like, where where are those? Ba okay, I know it's not going to make any lists, Bad times at the El Royale, maybe, maybe like yeah. I know that movie oh, underperformed, but yeah, I, like you don't you don't get any of those. It's it's odd. Um, something I haven't seen represented at all, which is a crying shame. But again, uh, greatly underperformed. Annihilation, that movie has has just completely gone under the radar. Um, it's yeah. a shame. And, and, <laughs> yeah, and, and, I know. And, and in the case of Annihilation and Bad Times at the Royale, that those are worth a, a bigger conversation about about movies not being great and why I like them, but. It's just surprising to see the movies that are on here be on here. I'm excited to see Black Klansman under motion picture. That's great. Uh, I, I guess A Star is Born is worth the time. Black Panther, sure. Uh, you know, uh, sure. Um, I don't know. I haven't seen if, if, Beale, if Beale Street is a good talk, so I, I can't get too far into that. I mean, that's another thing. There's a number of things that, that need to come out. Uh, again, if Beale Street could talk, uh, I'm really looking forward to Welcome to Marwin. I think that might be an awards contender as well. Uh, but that that's the whole thing about the Oscars is that it highlights films that a lot of people haven't seen, and that's kind of the point. It's like, look at these you know, pieces of more complex, more challenging you know, art film. Right. Something I was surprised to see, uh, just while I'm while I'm standing on my soapbox here, um, Viggo Mortensen is nominated for Green Book as best performance by an actor. Mahershala Ali is is nominated for Green Book by supporting actor, which is weird. I would have thought that was flipped, but I, I guess looking at the movie, it makes sense. Yeah, um, I mean, I mean, so, yeah. uh, Tony, what's the name? Tony in the movie? Viggo Mortensen's uh, character, Tony Vallelonga. Is, yeah, yeah, is he's the main character? It's his story, right? Maybe it shouldn't be, but that's what that's how it, I feel like the more I hear and read about Green Book, the more I was like, this should film kind of just needs to go away. <laughs> no, come on. Too many oh, people and while are, I'm at too, it. Too many people are just kind of not real happy with it. Uh, while, while I'm while I'm 
standing on my soapbox again. Uh, best original score, motion picture. I, I'm stunned uh, Johan Johansson isn't in there for Mandy because that is truly incredible work. Uh, I was I was surprised to see God. Who else am I thinking of? Um, um, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross for mid '90s probably should have been in there somewhere. The the score for Eighth Grade was incredible, an electronic score. Um, I get you can only nominate five people, but like, dude, hum the theme to Black Panther for me. Yeah, I, nobody I remembers it. Like, why is that on there? You know, like it's just Justin Hurwitz, First Man. What what did the music sound like for that? Like, I don't. It didn't have you know? a lot of music. Yeah. Um. <laughs> Yeah. So um, they, you know so what I, I feel know. like they did? Yeah. I feel like they did a what? mixture of, okay, let's pick some popular stuff and then some popular indies and, sure. just, and grab some names that have been up here before. So why – let's kind of bring this around now that we've been uh, – Ranting. Just yeah. beating the hell out of it. Yeah. Uh, what what could they do? That, that was When we were talking about this before the show, I asked that. I, I said, okay, say after this year, they're like, okay, we, by 2020, we're doing it right, all right? How did the Golden Globes turn this around? How, how did they say we're going to start nominating movies we truly feel should be? Um, I, I don't know. What, what, what's what's the player? How do you well, fix this? I, I think they need to reform some of their categories. I'm definitely splitting movies between drama and then musical or comedy. Is uh, you know you basically create a second class citizen of film when you do when you do this. This is just like the popular Oscar that they were going to do, and I think have since shelved. So I think kind of redoing that, and I think also just recognizing incredible movies that maybe a lot of people didn't see not just the mainstream stuff that it's like well it was kind of okay and but it made a bunch of money so let's throw it up there in the way of the oscars is it worth having 10 films in the top best picture none i i think so. i think so they, I, I they could too, expand the, cat- Why not? the category yeah yeah you could you could have 15 in there if you wanted and, and only one is going to win but it's a way to say it's an honor just to be nominated we're getting to a point where like there are truly so many good films that come out in a year and it's a bummer to see a lot of them not nominated and see something like Bohemian Rhapsody go in its place when it, unfortunately it shouldn't be you, what you're attached to there it's fine <laughs> I don't want to get too far into it. Sure, sure. What sure. you're attached to in Bohemian Rhapsody is the music and the one actor. That's the only thing that's good about it. All right. Otherwise, like you, you could pass. Um, but exactly. that's enough to get people to say, "Hey, I, I like it, and I want to run for it." So I don't know. I, I guess it is what it is. I, I, I suppose I, I, I I'm pleased to see. I, I know we. There's always a question of diversity, at least in the best motion picture category. I'm pretty pleased with how things look. You have a, a story about a. a uh, primarily gay character, and and then you have three stories with with uh, black um, cast, which is fantastic. Uh, Star is born is holding up a tentpole. Um, as as far as 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 actors and actresses go, I I, I feel okay. What what do you think? Um, Lack of diversity is that where you're at? Yeah, hang on. Sorry, I just closed my tab, but I'm back. Yeah, I'm back. You're so ready to move on. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm so sorry. Um, yeah, I, I mean, some of these are some of these I just haven't seen. So, like Nicole Kidman in Destroyer, which I heard was really good. I've also heard uh, Rosamund Pike was great in A Private War. So these are just some things that didn't get a lot of play. Um, again, I I thought Don David Washington was really good in Black Klansman, and I think we're gonna see a lot of that at the Oscars uh, for sure. Um, yeah, me too. And then let me just poke poke a look at. Uh, I do like seeing Elsie Fisher there in, in for eighth grade. I thought she was she was wonderful. And funny story, funny story about her. So she uh, after she made eighth grade, she auditioned for a play at school. Then the following year, when she was in high school, and she didn't get the part. Right. <laughs> Despite is having fantastic. something. Yeah. 
<laughs> despite having something on her her resume. So uh, sure, uh, that that's interesting. Yeah, um, I'm 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 going. pleased with the look of everything. I guess I, I I do have my my favorites, and I realize I'm a little biased towards them. But man, if if Olivia Coleman doesn't scoop Best Actress, I'm gonna be so bummed. But it's fine. Uh, we should move on. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to dig right back into that. Uh, uh, we've run way too long on this segment. Ultimately, the Golden Globes suck. The Oscars are where it's at. That's off script. Uh, we have one more movie to talk about. Andy, you've graciously agreed to take the summary on this. Please take it away. Schindler's List. They say your factory is a haven. They say you are good. Who says that? Everyone. So this is the 25th year anniversary of the release of this movie, and uh, Steven Spielberg, uh, I watched an interview, and he said he showed it last year at a film festival, and there was this huge reaction, and so he talked to the studio, and they decided to do a 25th year remaster, re-release, put it back in theaters, get it back into, uh, you know, people's minds. Um, this movie won. It came out in 1993. It won Best Picture, Best Director, Best Original Score, Best Cinematography, and there's uh, Best Adapted Screenplay. So it was it was a big winner. And and Steven Spielberg didn't think it was going to make any money. It was just almost he described it as a PSA that just we're doing our our part for for film and for history. But he didn't expect it to make any money. It actually turned into a, a huge hit. Anyways, the story is about a businessman named Oscar Schindler um, who was a member of the Nazi party and was essentially a, a war profiteer. And in 1939, he moves to Krakow, Poland, where uh, a Jewish ghetto has just been kind of created and with the hopes of employing the cheap Jewish labor. Um, and this is exactly what he does. And Unbeknownst to him, because he he's not necessarily a good guy. He's a gambler. He's a womanizer. He he drinks a lot. Um, he's very greedy. But he he opens his factory, and it kind of becomes slowly a safe haven from the Nazis and from uh, the concentration camps. Anyone who's working there is kind of safe, and not because he's a good man initially, but because of business and because of greed and because he wants to make money and if people are killing his workforce and he has to retrain and rehire and all this and so he inadvertently creates a, a safe haven and so uh, the rest of the film follows the progression of the war from 1939 to about 1940 or actually through the liberation and follows the situation where we go from the Jewish ghetto to uh, a forced labor camp and eventually all the way to Auschwitz. Um, so it's a very f heavy film, as you can tell from the uh, the subject matter. It is extremely violent. It, it is in black and white. It is over three hours long. It is an epic by every sense of the word. Um, so I'll stop there. Zach, what are your <laughs> thoughts? Um, I again, Like I said at the top of the show, I had never seen Schindler's List. This was my white whale for a little while. I, I have had a special edition copy of Schindler's List uh, in my possession for about five years. Still has the plastic on it. Never opened it. Because I've never had a time when I got home after a long day at work on a beautiful Saturday, I thought to myself, you know what? Today I want to watch Schindler's List. Never happened. And that's not, it's weird because I know a lot of people who have said, I think there was an old Seinfeld bit about it, believe it or not, that Schindler's List is a movie you, you almost need to watch out of obligation, uh, right. but you don't have to watch twice. Everybody should see it once and, and kind of take it home with them, and that's it. And you, you can watch it again if you're really into it. It is a beautiful piece of work. It truly is. It is 
stunning in its scope. Uh, it, it, it is stark in its depth. It is, it is harrowing at its worst, and it is triumphant at its best. What, what can we say that hasn't already <laughs> been said about Schindler's List? He's like, you know what I mean? It, 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 is a, it is a truly incredible piece of work. Well, I and think I've got it, issues with it. Okay. <laughs> no, that's that's good. <laughs> but I want to talk about what that is because ultimately, uh, no matter what I think, it, it, it is nitpicking at its finest. It is truly an incredible piece of work, uh, and I want to talk about that. What do you think? Oh, so I it, it's and I think it's <laughs> I think it's incredible as, as well. Um, and some of the reasons are it, it's a very stark and uh, blunt um, version of. of atrocities that occurred in in the holocaust uh people are killed at a whim killed nonchalantly it's incredibly violent but also incredibly uh banal as as well where um people kill without second thought like it's as easy as uh you know put it it's just standing up uh you see I mean, just atrocities as the people are forced into this ghetto, out of the ghetto, forced onto trains, into this labor camp, forced to in- endure physical harm and, you know, threat of death around every corner, as well as personal indignation at, at, at every corner. Um, I mean, there's just this sen- sense of tension the entire time. And, uh, I mean... Th- that and those scenes are, are incredible. They are hard hard to watch, and they're almost shot in a documentary style, um, where there's not a lot of dramatic uh, kind of filmmaking techniques used around a lot of these really terrible moments. It's just well, that's just how it happened. That's just what it is. Yes, uh, Spielberg. I did a little reading into this because I wanted to kind of dig into the movie and 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 find some stuff that I hadn't already heard. Uh, Spielberg was real particular about how the movie was made. Like you said, it, it, to him, it was more of an obligation. It was not a I'm going to make a bunch of money and this is going to be huge for me. He wanted to make it when he was 37, I think, and he waited a decade because he didn't want uh, he, he didn't want it. I don't know. I didn't think he was ready for it yet. Uh, right. In 92, he told Universal, who was distributing his films at the time through Amblin Entertainment, I'm ready. They said, okay, you got to make Jurassic Park first. <laughs> so he made Jurassic Park the same year as this movie. It was one of those situations, kind of like Back to the Future 2 and 3, where uh, he was working on editing Jurassic Park on the back end while preparing to make this movie, night and day stuff. Uh, it was super dark. He shot it all in black and white. Apparently, to keep his spirits up, he spent time uh, watching Seinfeld in the evenings after after making after going out and shooting Schindler's List because it was so dark. And ultimately, he wanted Amblin Entertainment not to be on the beginning or end of the film because he didn't want it to be any kind of thing pointed at him. He was like, "This is about history. This is about people. This isn't about me." Um, and it's stunning what he was able to do in that mindset. It, it is, in a way, yeah, you're right. It, it's almost like a gift to say here's this horrible thing that happened the way it's shot documentary style is truly embracing in in bits of it at least in the version i watch which is the version on netflix i didn't actually crack open that special edition dvd <laughs> i i don't know why but this is where i'm at um there are shots with film grain and even film scratches in it which make it feel archival and the black and white contributes to that it feels like it's pulled right out of history and you're right like there, there isn't a whole lot of drama around people getting straight up murdered in the streets. And, and when there is drama, it's almost used to a comedy effect, which is even more chilling. There's a great scene where 
uh, during the during a, uh, the purge, essentially, of the ghetto, uh, where the Nazis are running around shooting innocent Jews at night, um, there's there's a Nazi playing music, and there's two other Nazis debating whether or not it's Mozart or Bach, and it's like a comedy shot. It's very chilling in a way, uh, and it's you feel bad for laughing at it, uh, and I'm not sure what effect that's supposed to have exactly. I'm still kind of processing the film, but. Ultimately, it's in its presentation, it is a, a tr I mean, I, I don't mean to keep saying the word incredible, but I'm sure I'll say it more than once. It's incredible. Yeah, uh, definitely. And that's one of the, I think, purposes that Steven Spielberg wanted to get across is just how commonplace and kind of the banality of, of evil and, and murder. Um, because what a lot of people don't know is that extermination was never the goal of the of the nazis per se that they had hoped to round up the jews and then kind of put them somewhere else move them to madagascar or something like that um deport them elsewhere in the world uh, but when that became uh, an impossibility because of finances and logistics then that's when the the final solution came to be about so and and i think that's one of the the stories that the the film is trying to tell you is that these things don't happen overnight we don't go from zero to genocide in one day it happens slowly it happens gradually it it happens by things slowly getting worse and worse and worse and uh and no one doing anything about it um go ahead sorry and there's a there's a very clever bit uh towards the end i, I know what a spoiler show and i'm not here to, to spoil exactly how it, it goes but it is 25 years old it is 25 years old. There, there's a very clever bit towards the end that reminded me a lot of, of the, the new Bo Burnham film from earlier this year, Eighth Grade, where uh, Spielberg builds right up to a moment of, of absolute horror and then pulls back because he knows um, you don't have to show the worst to yeah. give your audience that feeling. Um, and it's super effective because you're right. It is a long, slow burn. It is a long road to, to horror and, and it, it gets there. Um, and it's terrible. I, I loved that about 40% of the film is handheld. That's according to IMDb. I feel like that's probably pretty accurate. A lot of handheld in this movie. And I think a lot yeah. of that contributes to the feeling of panic and terror and, 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 and uh, putting you on the street to make it feel like this stuff is, is real because it, happened um which is chilling and that comes around at the end of the film in in a oddly documentary uh, style tribute to uh the man right yeah um we should talk about the plot and and, and yes. the characters a little go bit. ahead oh uh me i was gonna say oh, take uh, oh okay I, I, just, yeah. I just did a bunch of talking okay please. It's, uh, sorry so um so yes oscar schindler creates this factory it it, it it just makes enamel works and his he befriends or sort of he hires uh itchstock Itzhak Stern, uh, played by Ben Kingsley, who's a Jewish accountant and kind of business manager, hires him to run the the factory and to to grease the wheels that needs to be greased because a lot of people are kind of bribed and paid off so that he can have his factory and and make money. And it's really Stern who is the one who realizes, hey, if I can get people in here, I can save them from the death squads. I can save them from from dying elsewhere. So he's the one who is initially getting people and trying to get his friends and telling them, okay, say this, say this. No, don't say that you're an academic. Say that you're a metal worker. You know, this, these kinds of things. So he's really 
doing all all the kind of the legwork and it's only over time that oscar schindler who's very enigmatic we never see one moment where he just kind of goes he flips kind of who he is but i think one of the powerful things of the movie is that he goes from being indifferent to active and i think that's a very powerful statement that you know a, a lot of evil happens just when people stand by and he reaches a point where he can no longer stand by there's a lot of brilliant performances in this movie, but um, Oscar Schindler, played by Liam Neeson, and, and Itzhak Stern, played by uh, Sir Ben Kingsley, um, both brilliant. And you're right, like uh, uh, Sir Ben Kingsley is so uh, important, his character, to, to what happens. And it turns out, in reality, uh, he's an amalgamation of a number of different characters in Oscar Schindler's life. He, he is kind of a, a little bit of a, a fictional retelling of, of that, but... That's not to say it dashes the effect. If anything, you're right. Like it's 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 multiplied. He is the 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 odd, very calculating angel on on uh, Oscar Schindler's shoulders. I wish, and this is this is a little bit of a nitpick here. I, I wish we'd had a bit more of of like a Macbeth kind of uh, moment with with Oscar Schindler. Moments where he he pulls back the curtain a little bit in privacy, maybe with its Oxturn, which you do get, but I, I, I don't know. I, it's, it never feels quite monologue enough to really get into his psyche or, or even with his, I, I think it's his wife in the movie, right? Like I, I think, mm-hmm. yeah, right. I, I wish we'd had more of a moment where he, he stops and he goes like really digs into his, 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 his consciousness for a moment. And he says, you know, what am I doing? What is this for? You never, really get into that and and i wonder if the reason that is at least i think stop me if i'm wrong i wonder if the reason that is is because spielberg didn't want this movie to be hey this is oscar schindler the hero of the jews it was it wasn't about that yeah right yeah the savior of the holocaust i mean there's a reason it's not called schindler it's called schindler's list like and it pulls back from oscar schindler a bit and that's important it doesn't make him any less of an important character in the film but it keeps him at arm's length a little bit which is smart but i had trouble connecting with him because of it right well from what i've read i i think he was actually kind of enigmatic in real life like they i mean spielberg himself has said you know we don't really know why he acted the way he did he he put was putting himself at risk he could have just been went along with things as normal and probably made more money uh, but that something definitely changed, but it was, it, no one r- really knows. There's not a real good reason. And we see that portrayed in the film where he, at one point he realizes that his factory is getting this this reputation as a safe haven. He gets really angry at at, uh, at Chuck Stern, said, we could be caught, we could be all this. And then, but then as he's leaving, he hands him a slip of paper and says, okay, make sure you get these people in. Right. It reminds me a lot of the Andre the Giant documentary on HBO that we watched earlier this year. They, they keep him on that pedestal. They keep him like this mythical kind of individual. They don't dig too far into his psyche. And for me, that hurts the film. But for many, it won't. It's just a personal preference and, again, a nitpick at best. Right. Uh, what did you think of Ralph Fiennes? Right. Yeah. Very important character that we need to talk about. Uh, he plays uh, Amon Girth who was a Nazi SS officer. Uh, he he is the kind of commandant of the uh, forced labor camp. He arrives about an hour into the film when they decide to purge uh, the ghetto. Um, and it's, it's interesting, that reminds me of another point where their use of language is very important because they'll use words like special treatment, which means the exact opposite of special treatment. And whenever they 
cl- clear out the ghetto, they say we're liquidating the ghetto. So the use of language is an is an important thing throughout the film as well. But he he is a, is a foil, or he is kind of the opposite of Oscar Schindler. He is kind of like hate incarnate. He hates the Jews, and he, I mean, he he is drinking the punches the the best way I can. I mean, he kills lots of people himself. He orders people to be killed for no reason. It's very arbitrary. Uh, there's a really uh, powerful scene where uh, a Jewish engineer uh, comes to him and says the way they're building this is wrong. They need to tear it down, start all over. Otherwise it's going to fall. It's going to going to uh, collapse on people. And he orders her to be shot right away. And she is. And then he says, okay, whatever she was t- telling you to do, do it, Re- tear it down, rebuild the whole thing. So there's this like no rhyme or reason uh, to how he is. Yeah. I-, I-, I was truly stunned by his performance. Um, Apparently, uh, according to IMDb, again, uh, one of the reasons Spielberg liked Ralph Fiennes for the performance so much is because he had a, quote, like, evil sexuality, which is not a particularly sexual character, but he's he's fascinating to watch in this movie. He's a brilliant foil for, for Oscar Schindler's character, because just like Oscar Schindler, you never really get inside his head. You kind of don't. Like, you never, you never really find out what is this guy thinking, what makes him tick, um, and it keeps him at arm's length. But on the opposite end of while while Schindler is a savior, he is he is a a absolute nightmare of a man. He is, he is horrible. I mean, he he does atrocious things to people just cause, like for no real reason. Like he just does. I guess because he has the opportunity. He he views the Jews as this this really. I don't know. I I don't know. It, it's hard to describe. But, but he he's played brilliantly uh, by Ralph Fiennes, who I, at the time I don't think was doing a whole lot of work like this. Right. Um, so at my screening, there was actually a little short, like three minute introduction by Steven Spielberg um, talking about the, the 25th anniversary re-release. And he talks about, you know, the film highlights the power, both the power of hatred and bigotry and also the power of, of love and empathy. And I think that's what we get in the two characters, um, you know, where Oscar Schindler goes from I- indifferent to having love and empathy for these people to save them. And then... Um, Amon Garth is the exact opposite. He he has he completely hates his, these people. He's completely bought into the propaganda, and but at the same time, he's very hypocritical because he he gets a Jewish girl to be his kind of house servant, and slow strangely like falls in love with her, but at the same time, he's supposed to hate her. And so, but I think that's a you know that's kind of pointing out the ridiculousness of of bigotry. Yes, uh, there's a great scene towards the end of the movie when when uh, Oscar Schindler proposes essentially an exchange with him, and he says, "Listen, I'd like to open up a, a sub camp and have a bunch of workers come with me, and I'll pay you for them. What is what is one of their lives worth to you?" And and Ralph Fiennes' character uh, flips it back and says, "No, no, no. What is it worth to you?" It's it's this brilliant sh- scene. It's shot uh, these two characters are out on a balcony, and it's shot inside through windows, and so you get them crossing over between boundaries and ultimately they end up in the same frame uh which makes it look really charming uh and it's a it's a it's a really well really well directed scene um and i love that i love that that question because both of these men start on the same foot i mean when the film when you first see the two of them it's in a shot it's it's in the scene where both of them are shaving and it cuts between the two of them like it's really cool they both start in the same place they're both germans they're both members of the nazi party but they both end in a different in a different way and like that's 
Yeah, it's so fascinating to see how the evil of this of, of this time and place and ideology can can tear two men in two dr drastically different directions from places that they thought they'd never be. Um, and and I, I enjoyed that so much. It, Spielberg did a brilliant job bringing that out. Right, and I, and I think that's to me the film is bigger than the Holocaust, which is obviously an, an a huge event in itself, but. You know, the film speaks to, again, the power of hate and the power to overcome hate. And I mean, because we have had, you know, there have been genocides since then. You know, we have the, in the 60s, uh, there was a communist purge. We have Pol Pot in the 70s and the Khmer Rouge. In more recent times, we've had, uh, you know, a genocide in, in Myanmar and in Rwanda. So it's, you know, these are things that kind of keep happening. And it's, it, sure. it is important to remind our, not forget that's the other big point of the of the movie um let's get into some of the issues you had and some of the controversies that kind of have surrounded it sure well I'm, I'm interested to hear about the controversies my issues are really what the film does in scope i understand how how tremendous it is uh, the film featured uh 20, extras which is insane uh, they had the need for so many uh, articles of clothing and 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 props for this film that they actually put out requests all across Poland for people to donate to the film old, old clothes they had and stuff and because of the economy and 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 where they had been after World War II a lot of families still had old clothes and things that they donated to this film uh, it's also worth noting the film was uh, in black and white almost entirely and, and apparently on set this is just a fun fact this isn't really a nitpick but. Uh, apparently, the color green didn't come across well in the black and white. So a lot of times on set, things looked out like they were wacky colors. They looked crazy. But in black and white, it looked perfect. Right. So apparently, they were willing to sacrifice a lot of that uh, uh, fakery, I guess, for, for what the film turned out to be, which is great. But really, my biggest issue is in scope. Uh, again, I, I wish it had been a little bit more particular towards one individual you could connect to and less in a situation as a whole that seems far away. I feel like a, a big reason a lot of people don't return to this movie and watch it again is because one, it's horrifying. Two, you don't really have a protagonist you can really dig into and, and, and side with. There's nobody you can really put yourself in their shoes uh, other than Oscar Schindler, who you never really get to know that well. And three, it's just too damn long. It is three hours it, and 15 minutes. And I think all three of those things hurt to, hurt the rewatchability of this film and certainly hurt it from the scope of the average cinema goer, which is in 1993, the average cinema goer, I should say. Nowadays, nobody is going to sit through this movie. I mean, that's why it's limited <laughs> release again anyway, which is a bummer. I mean, even I was afraid to go see this movie in the theater. I ended up watching it on Netflix because I thought I cannot sit through that for three hours and 15 minutes. I even split it in half. I, I had an intermission because I couldn't do it all in one shot. It, it is so <laughs> daunting. <laughs> Thank you. I know, I know. I, I mean, this is bold cinema. I should be into this, but it is so daunting. And, and I think that ultimately hurts the film. And I think there's things you could do to fix that. Sure. I, I, I will quote, as I'd like to do, I will quote uh, Roger Ebert, who, who once said... No, uh, no bad film is short enough, and no good film is too long. Um, yes. and that's what he said about this one. He said it, it actually felt like it it flew by, and that 
there's so much more to know and and to tell. And that kind of gets into one of the controversies is that um, a lot of people, particularly from the Jewish community, uh, think it doesn't really do justice to the Holocaust. I mean, and that's a larger question. I don't know if you can on film um, because this is a story about. 600 or about a thousand people who who survived uh stanley kubrick also had a famous kind of comment on the film um because he was going to do a holocaust film called the aryan papers which he never did in fact he didn't do it because uh spielberg did schindler's list but he said this movie is meant to feel like a success and it's and the holocaust was about six million jews that died and this is about a thousand people that live so again it's the scope isn't large enough for the subject matter um so that's one that's one kind of controversy uh some people have issues with Oscar Schindler who is a german being kind of this savior figure people have issues with that um so the, there's a lot kind of that surrounds the film but any any time you take on a really serious subject people are going to have a problem um i was listening to a great podcast about django unchained and they brought up 12 years of slave and they talked about there's lots of controversies with 12 years of slave because people aren't happy with this thing this portrayal or that portrayal but i think i will quote zach here who says you know you got, you got to judge a film by what it is not by what it isn't it's true uh i did think it was interesting uh with this movie uh, apparently before He's originally he was going to executive produce it. He didn't think he could tackle it. Uh, Steven Spielberg approached Roman Polanski to direct it. And and Polanski, who had lived through part of this as a child, was in Poland. um, Right. When this happened, didn't want to do it. He's like, nope, that's that hits a little too close to home. Uh, Spielberg profusely apologized. He ended up not doing it. And then in 2002, Roman Polanski made The Pianist. Right. I love The Pianist. I think that movie is brilliant. And I got problems with Roman Polanski, but that's that's for another time. Uh, but the reason I like it is is many of the reasons outlined here. One, it feels closer to home. It's in color. It, it it's, it's more modern. It looks a little crisper. It's HD. It follows one guy, and it very much centers on that one individual and his experience through all of this. And ultimately, it's shorter. Like all of yeah. those things, all of those things, I think help the experience. Schindler's List feels so damn big; it's hard to wrap your head around. I'm struggling to talk about it now because of it. Um, it's not to say it's bad; it's just different. And right. and, and I, it's challenging. That's that. It, it is a challenging <laughs> film. Thank you. It's it's like it's like reading a real thick novel, you know, versus a, a shorter one. As far as the scope is is concerned, I, I do think I think maybe that you know fiction film isn't may not be the place to tackle on that subject. Uh, I think you kind of have to look to, there's a documentary called Shoah that is about nine hours long that is about the Holocaust and um, interviews people that were there, people that, that lived through it. And, and, I, and I know that, that I think for Schindler's List they used or interviewed a lot of these same people, but I think maybe something like a documentary, long-form documentary might be a more accurate place. And some people just think that you can't recreate or represent something as horrific and as large as scope as the Holocaust was on film. And and for all of my uh, complaining about the length and the size of it, uh, I should I should clarify, like I told Andy before we started the show, I, I started watching this film at 1 a.m., which is insane because it's three hours and 15 minutes. And I figured I, I'll stop somewhere in the middle and I'll, I'll take a break. I was, I was exhausted. I had a long day and I thought, well, I'll make myself a pot of coffee. I put on a pot of coffee, started the movie. Um, 
two hours and 15 minutes later into three hours and 15 minutes. Not only did I not want to stop watching the film, but it was 3.15 and I needed to go to bed. I didn't even touch the coffee. Never even got up. I was, <laughs> man, I, 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 I was tuned in. Yeah, and I, I, I mean, I had to, I kept checking my watch. Like, I have to stop watching this. At some point, I'll watch 10 more minutes. I'll watch 15 more. Like, I just kept going. And, like, I, I, I was awake. I was into it the whole time. Like, it, it truly does cast a spell on you in a really intriguing way and it's tough for me to explain it um but uh, yeah for all of my nitpicking again it is nitpicking at its finest like this is a tremendous film um and i was really into it so, yeah. right and i think uh just kind of a, a ps if you will please uh, so this reminds me uh, of also uh spielberg's other film munich which is about the uh you know the terrorist kind of uh, attack at the Berlin Olympics in the, in the 70s where the, uh it, you know the the team from is- Israel was was killed and kind of the aftermath of that and that's another very powerful film that you know covers the subject of the persecution of the Jewish people mhm i never saw munich so maybe that'll be that'll be the next big one we can see <laughs> but um i suppose we should wrap up right any any final thoughts before we move on to recommendations no, I think we're ready. <laughs> Andy? Oh, one more thing. You went and saw this in the theater. Yes. I, I assume there was no intermission, right? It was straight all the way through. Right, correct. How'd you hold up? Bathroom break? What'd you think of the theater experience for Schindler's List? Because I didn't have that. I, I just saw it at home. Right. I I definitely wanted to see it in the theater to see what it was like on the, the big screen. I, I think it makes a big difference. Um, they, they didn't show any previews before that. Before it, it's just it starts with uh, Steven Spielberg's introduction, uh, which is only a couple of minutes uh, long. And I mean, I, I was kind of glued to my seat the the entire time. It's just it's such a compelling narrative, and there's so there's so much to take in. I think uh, this movie will share a lot of similarities to my first screening of 2001. Uh, the first time I watched 2001, I watched it at home. Didn't get it. Uh, went and saw it at a theater with you. Uh, awesome. I, I think I feel the same way about this one. And I'm, I'm not upset I watched it at home first because it still is an incredible film. But I think now that I've seen it and been able to process it once just on a surface level, if I go see it in a theater again, maybe on the 30th anniversary, I think I'll appreciate it that much more. So I don't regret the way I saw it. Um, after seeing it once, I'd be interested to see it in a theater again. But for the first time, I'm okay with the way I did it. So, yeah. Right, right. Andy, would you recommend Schindler's List? Absolutely. Uh, this should be required viewing by Oof. everyone. Oh, wow. Um, because it's, it's there as a reminder of these horrific things that happened. And it's there to remind us that these things can happen again if we don't, if we let them. And I, you know, I, this film, I feel, is actually more relevant now. And Steven Spielberg said the same thing. This film is more relevant now than it was 25 years ago because we have kind of had a resurgence of neo-Nazism and kind of uh, white supremacy movement. So it's definitely a good reminder of the consequences of hate and bigotry and how we need to never forget that these things have happened and that they can be repeated if we are not careful. Um that being said, uh, it, again, it is incredibly violent. It does touch on a very serious uh, subject matter. Um, so, uh, again, I, while I think everyone should see it from a historical perspective, it definitely is going to have a lot of difficult um, moments in it. Uh, I agree. 
I, I think just like um, I mean, surprise, right? B big surprise. We we both recommend Schindler's <laughs> List, right? Um, I, I man, I it's tough for me not to also agree with the with the sentiment that most people will watch this once and never see it again. It took me five years to actually sit down and watch this movie, and it took a movie podcast to do it. Like it it, it took a lot to get me to actually do it. I'm glad I did it. It is tough to watch. It is one of the most inspiring films of all time. It is worth the effort. It is worth the time. You got to do it. If, if, you, if you're sitting there listening to this podcast, you made it all the way to this end of the conversation, and you're thinking, man, I still don't know if I could watch Schindler's List. I promise you can. It, it is worth your time. You will respect it. It is a movie worth respecting. You're right. It, it, is, a, it is a tale of, of not only the horrors of war, but also how subtly simple it is to get there. From from A to B to C all the way to Z, right? Uh, it it is it is totally worth the price of admission. Could not recommend enough Schindler's List. And with that, I think that about wraps our show. Uh, my God, it has been a whirlwind episode, one yeah. of our longest in a while. I, I if I have to apologize for anything, it one it's the series of stumbles I seem to have had. I apologize, and two, the Mowgli conversation ran a little long. Gonna be honest, I feel okay with the Schindler's List combo, but. Mowgli, uh, also maybe Golden Globes. But that's neither here nor there. Uh, next week on the show, we haven't talked about what we're going to see, uh, but if I could pick anything, I, I would say probably Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. That's the hot new release. Yeah, definitely. I'd like to see The Mule, uh, which is a Clint Eastwood film. Other things going on. Uh, First Reformed is now on Amazon Prime, the Ethan Hawke film that I hear is getting snubbed all over for awards because apparently uh -huh. it's incredible. And Roma is going to be out, right? The Alfonso Cuaron film right. on Netflix. And Mary Queen of Scots gets, I think, a wide release this week. Does it really? Yeah. I'm going to be honest. <laughs> I've heard some things about Mary Queen of Scots that maybe aren't so glowing, but I, that, sure. it's bold cinema, damn it, and it's probably worth our time. Uh, I noticed I put in Mortal Engines <laughs> here, and you put a strike through through it. Uh, not, not even an option. All right, <laughs> just gonna hard, just gonna hard veto me. I'll get you someday with the young adult film. You'll be forced to watch it. Uh, but otherwise, if you enjoyed the show, if you think Mowgli was terrible, if you thought Schindler's List was fantastic, or vice versa, if you think the Golden Globes are great, or maybe not so much, if you have any thoughts about Kevin Hart, I Tanya's director doing Cruella Deville, or the Prince musical, or anything we might have covered or didn't cover, email us at mail at offscriptfilmreview.com. Uh, check out our website, offscriptfilmreview.com. Hit us up on Facebook. We're on Instagram. We're even on Twitter. So get involved. Tell your friends. Subscribe to the show. Rate, review. If you can swing it, the show would not be what it is without each and every one of you. And we appreciate you listening. From all of us here at Offscript, the home of Bold Cinema, I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Thanks for listening.